about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to seek you, to seek your face and to trust your grace toward us. We thank you for such a great king uh, who gives up his life for us. And we pray that uh, our eyes may be full of light uh, so that we know how to see. Amen. Well, not sure what your background in shepherding is. Not sure what your background in shepherding is. Uh, maybe you've been to the grounds of Alexandria. It's about as close as we get to urban farming. Maybe you've been to the petting area of Taronga Zoo. Although, let's face it, it's a long walk around the zoo. And if you're not with little people, who could be bothered? Um, one of the opportunities I had in the last week, on our day off, Leah and I drove to Annan Grove, just near Dural. Uh, to get our spinning wheel repaired. I say our spinning wheel in as much as it's in our house. And uh, in the uh, knitting world at Annan Grove, uh, there were bags of unspun wool, just wool straight off the sheep's back. And the, the smell of it, that lanolin smell, came back to me and reminded me of all those weeks I spent on my aunt and uncle's farm outside Cooma during shearing weeks, not really doing anything useful, although I thought I was at the time, uh, really just sweeping up the dags and the spare bits of wool off the shearing shed floor. Shepherds are not the centre of Israel's life and society. The shepherds are the outliers. And it's often that God uses the outliers, those who are familiar with the realities of life, of fighting off prey, as we read about in chapter 3. The outliers can see the spiritual reality more clearly than the people who are embedded in it. I think it's one of the reasons we often have outsiders come and speak to us as a church when we have combined events, because they can say, hey, you people in the inner west, you've fallen for all this stuff, for example. And so as Amos speaks to Israel and Judah, uh, by the time uh, this bit of the Old Testament had happened, if you think of Israel's history as a line, there was a split when Israel and Judah, the ten tribes and the two, got broken up into two separate kingdoms. And so you can see there in verse 1 it says, Uzziah was the king of Judah and Jeroboam was the king of Israel. The kingdom had already split 
And Isaiah speaks to both nations, but as one who is part of Israel, but also an outsider. And his main image is of a lion roaring. Most of the minor prophets that we'll see have a main image that they use to kind of sell their vision, if you'll allow the phrase. And Amos's vision is a lion roaring. The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. Now, I've not been on a safari. I've seen uh, lions outside Dubbo. Uh, and it was great, but the lions we saw were like prancing lions. They were happy, they knew that there was food coming when the truck came around. This is not an image of the friendly lion. Uh, this is an image of the voice that shakes the village in terror. It's the voice of impending death. That in an age without shotguns and tranquilizer darts, if there's a lion who's hungry, someone is going to die. The Lord roars from Zion. And he starts by pointing his finger at all the surrounding nations. If you were looking at a map, it'd be like this. You guys, you guys, you guys, you guys. This is what the Lord says, chapter 1, verse 3. For three sins of Damascus, I won't turn back my wrath. Verse 6, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Verse 9, for three sins of Tyre, even for four, I won't turn back my wrath. Verse 11, for three sins of Edom. These are not God's people. These are the surrounding nations who've been living terribly for their acts of war. Verse 3, she threshed Gilead. For their treatment of people. Verse 6, taking captive whole communities and selling them. For disregarding their promises, verse 9, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. But it's not just the surrounding nations that God has eyes of judgment for. See, in chapter 2, verse 4, the message comes closer to home. Chapter 2, verse 4, over the page, the Lord says, for three sins of Judah, aha, God's own people. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. And this time it's personal. It's personal because God has spoken to them and they've ignored him. Now, I'm not sure whether that's happened to you recently, whether you've spoken to someone and they've ignored you. As a parent, this hasn't happened to me for at least a couple of hours. As a school teacher, this happened to me daily. I would speak and people would ignore me. And then justice would flow. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 4. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because they've rejected me. They've rejected the law of the Lord and not kept his decrees. There's two ways to think about the law of the Lord, aren't there? 
It's a heavy weight put on the people which insists on obedience which must be done to earn the favour of God. The weight of the law. But the way that God speaks of the law is as a gift. Not Israel, you've got the law. But Israel, you know what to do to please God. You know when you get a new boss and you don't actually know what they want, what they what pleases them? The law is God's gift to his people to let them know how to live in a way that pleases him. And because God is good, it's a law that's good for the people who obey it and good for the people who see it obeyed. But Judah, God's own people, have rejected his words. Led astray by false gods, gods their ancestors followed. And here's the promise in chapter 2, verse 5. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Fire is that picture of judgment that burns up what is impure. And notice the place that it burns. It burns up the place that God promised to dwell, to have his people planted, Jerusalem. And it's not just a message for Judah, it's a judgment for Israel. Chapter 2, verse 6, for three sins of Israel, even for four. It's this poetic weight of growing judgment. I will not turn back my wrath. What have they done wrong? What have God's people done wrong? Look at the list. It's a list of treatment of people. They sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and profane my holy name. They lie down beside altars on garments taken in pledge in the house of their God. They drink wine taken as fines. What grieves the Lord and arouses his roaring fire of judgment is when the poor and the oppressed are mistreated, when the needy are ignored and treated as worthless. Because the Lord has created everyone, the rich and the poor, and it's a temptation for us as the rich to treat the poor like they don't exist. I remember being astonished when I was in year nine, I went on a camp and there was this guy who had constantly bloodshot eyes and a big beard. He was one of the leaders. I was like, scary dude. And he was constantly outraged at the way that we in the West use our wealth. If you have running hot water, he said, you're in the richest 5% of the world. Now, I don't know if that's true, but as a kid who'd grown up on the North Shore, I was like, oh, I didn't realise I was rich. Like, my parents drove a Mazda 323. Compared to the people around me, I wasn't rich. We lived in a weatherboard house with a view of a council depot, not in a sandstone mansion with a view of the harbour. Compared to my friends, I wasn't rich. But in the world, we are rich. And one of the things that arouses the Lord's judgment is the way that the rich use their power and the way they treat the needy and the oppressed. To the people that Amos spoke to, God's own people who had this light of the law on how to treat one another 
a law where there was forgiveness, a law there where, where love was commanded, where borders and justice were to be honoured. It's their treatment of people, their misuse of power, and their diabolical treatment of God's worship that arouses the fire of his judgment. In the house of God, even in the temple, they drink what was taken as fines. It's a picture of everything that should have been right, gone wrong. And so, in the court case of judgment, chapter 3 opens with, well, witnesses. And there's that great series of questions that Leah read, to which sometimes I don't know the answer to. Does a lion roar in the thicket when he has no prey? I'm not sure. I mean, the answer is no, it doesn't. But my knowledge of lions doesn't extend that far. Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground where no snare has been set? Well, if you shoot it, it does, but not naturally. Does a trap spring up from the earth when there's nothing? What's the point of all these questions? Because it's meant to be no, no, no. When disaster comes to a city... Has not the Lord caused it? Did you read that? Did you hear that? I've got questions about that verse. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? This is saying when anything happens in the world, God is the sovereign hand behind it. Do you believe this? Is the war in Syria able to be accounted for by the hand of God? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Yes. For if he hasn't caused it, he is not the sovereign Lord. All things that happen, happen under the eye of the sovereign Lord. And yet, God's word insists that God is good and holy. How can this be? The answer that chapter 3 verse 7 gives to God bringing disaster is that God is not silent even in the face of misery. God is not silent. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his people through his servants, the prophets. And so you know what to do. You know what to do. Verse 10, they don't know how to do right, declares the Lord, who hoard, plunder and loot their fortunes. They don't know, but you do because you've had God speak to you. And so this picture of judgment, of the lion coming close, verse 12, this is what the Lord says, you'll just be saved. Only a little bit of you will be saved. How much? As a shepherd saves from a lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. It's not a pretty picture. It's violent and depressing. It's death with just these little shabby bits, that bottom bit of the lamb leg that you don't really want to eat and a piece of a lamb's ear. That's how much of Israel will be saved. Virtually nothing.
the word of Amos to Israel is a message of fiery judgment. That they should know to return to their God. But they don't. They should know, but they don't. And it's easy for us to sit in judgment on Israel. You knew what to do and you didn't do it. But friends, this is my story day in, day out. I know what to do and I just don't do it. I know that I could share the wealth that I have. I know that I could make better choices with the use of my time and my money, my words, my effort. And I don't. Have I walked away from the Lord? Not wholesale. Not wholesale like Israel had, but my half-hearted attempts at following God are worthy of condemnation. God says, haven't you learned from what I did? Haven't you learned, chapter 4, all these terrible things that happened to you were meant to get you to cast yourself back on me. I think this is tricky for us because our lives on the whole look okay. We can cover it up pretty well when we come to church for an hour on a Sunday. But the picture that God paints here is that he brings disaster on people to bring them to him. God brings disaster on people to show them their need for him. My own sin has led to a disaster where I am opposed to the God who made me and I need him to forgive. Have a look in chapter 4, page 908. Let's choose verse 9. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. Yet you haven't returned to me. You didn't get the message. When your crops failed, I was sending you a message. Verse 10, I sent plagues among you, as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostril with the stench of your camps, yet you haven't returned to me. Your defeat in the garden, your defeat on the war field, your defeat as a society where you're in a camp rather than a house. But you haven't turned back to me. Because you haven't turned back, this is what I'm going to do. Chapter 4, verse 12. This is what I will do to you. And because I'll do this to you, what's the most terrifying thing you can say? Prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. The lion who roars and thunders. The one, verse 13, who forms the mountains, creates the wind and reveals his thoughts to man. The Lord who turns dawn to darkness and treads the high places. The Lord Almighty is his name. This is the difference, isn't it? Between people who know the Lord and don't. People who know the Lord realise that there is part of the Lord's character, which is terrifying, that he made all things and calls all things to account. Prepare to meet your God is a message of terrifying judgment. 
in chapter 5 sings this song of lament that if you meet God, it's not going to be pretty for you. This lament, I didn't write the music for it, but it's meant to be a song, a depressing song. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. No one to lift her up. It's a message and a song of hopelessness. And again, the treatment of people arouses the Lord's anger. Verse 11, you trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. You've got big houses, but you're not going to live in them. You've got fancy vineyards, but you won't drink your wine because of your offences and sin. You oppose the righteous. You take bribes. You deprive the poor of justice in the courts. By the way, as much as we tease lawyers, the Lord loves lawyers. The Lord loves righteousness. And it's important for a society that seeks to honour God and treat people well, to have good lawyers. So as much as we want to make lawyer jokes, and I do, but I restrain myself, we pray for those who enact justice in our society because the Lord loves justice. The Lord says, chapter 5, verse 16, there'll be wailing in the streets, cries of anguish in the public square because what happened to Egypt on the day of judgment at the Passover, will happen to you, Israel. See verse 17? I will pass through your midst. God passing through your midst, it's not the court of King Caractacus, where the king goes marching by, and the harem of the ladies of the courts, you know? It's not a happy parade. It's Passover. When the Lord passes through his people with judgment, and death, is the answer. Death is the result of ignoring the God who made you. If you flick over to chapter 7 and 8, Amos chooses two very strange visions. Well, God chooses two strange visions to show to Amos. And if you are going to remember the things that happen in Amos that don't happen otherwise in other parts of the Bible... God shows Amos two things. Chapter 7, he shows him a plumb line, uh, not a picture of a piece of fruit on a string. Uh, now, a plumb line, just a little bit of Latin for you, a Latin name for lead, anyone? What's the chemical symbol for Latin? PB, plumbum in Latin. Uh, when you want to get a straight line on a building site, you use a plumb line. And so a piece of lead hanging on the bottom of the string helps you get something in a straight line. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, chapter 7, verse 1. Preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And when they'd stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob survive? He's so small. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. First locust, now fire. It dried up the great deep of water and devoured the land. I cried out, Sovereign Lord... Stop! How can Jacob survive? He's so small. The little bits of lamb. The little bits of God's people. But verse 6, So the Lord relented 
by the way, the fact that it's repeated in verse 3 and verse 6. The Lord loves to relent in response to the prayers of his people. Whenever God changes his mind in the Old Testament, I'm going to destroy my people and someone prays and God always relents. He's a God who turns his heart from justice to mercy. So pray, I urge you, for the Lord to have mercy on those you love who do not know him. The Lord relents. And this is what he showed me, chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. And the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. He's drawing a line in the sand and says, that's enough. If you're not perfect, you're getting knocked down. Chapter 8. This is what the Lord's, the sovereign Lord showed me. A basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. Guess what Amos says? A basket of ripe fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. It's kind of like a dad's joke, isn't it? It's like, here's a fence. What do you see, Amos? It's a fence. Well, my people are being offensive. Yeah. You know, it's the... It's like that, but it's memorable. I'm drawing a line in the sand. The fruit is ripe. The time is coming. Amos hears and passes on to the people. And the warning of chapter 8, verse 7, I will never forget anything they have done, is a terrifying message. One of the things that caused me to reflect on where I stood before God before I turned to him in faith was the idea that someone had recorded all the things that I had done and thought and written them down and they were available to read. That was a terrifying thought to me. The Lord knows everything you have done. I will never forget anything they have done. And to meet the God who knows us to meet the God of justice is terrifying. And the word of chapter 9 to Israel is the word of God to his people all through history. The Lord standing by the altar, the place where sacrifice is meant to happen, and he says, strike. Strike the tops of the pillars in the temple, the stuff that holds up the house of God, so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of the people. I wish your church would collapse, he says. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. Wherever you go, I will find you. It's the ransom version. I will find you and I will kill you. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, I'll hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they're driven to exile by the enemies, I'll command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. 
if you live in God's world and ignore him, if you treat those he loves and has made with disdain, God knows. The Lord who touches the earth and it melts. Chapter 9, verse 5. This is the Lord who builds his lofty place in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. See, the difference between those who know the Lord and those who don't is knowing his name. When God reveals himself to Moses at the bush, Moses doesn't know him. Who are you? I am who I am. I am who I will be. I'm the God you know by my actions, God says to Moses. The Lord who makes everything is always the one who comes in judgment. It's because he is the creator that he can call his creation to account. And Amos, having spent eight and a half chapters talking about the lion who roars, ends with the little bit of the lamb leg and the little bit of the ear. A little bit of hope for God's people who are in exile away from a temple that functions. Chapter 9, verse 11, starts with a look to the future. In that day, there will be a time, there will be a time when God won't totally destroy the house of Jacob. In that day, I'll restore David's fallen tent. I'll repair its broken places and restore its ruins and build it as it used to be. Now, I don't know how you feel about tents. Even when a tent is fixed, I feel like it's not that impressive. Still just a tent, right? David's broken tent is referring to what used to be the place where God lived before they built the temple. He's talking about the tabernacle, the place where God dwelt with his people. They carried it around in the desert for 40 years and then David built himself a palace, but 2 Samuel 7, there wasn't a place for God. And so they eventually built the temple. David's broken tent is where God is with his people. It's the, the beating heartbeat of the nation of Israel. It's not just your beach mission marquee or that thing you use when you camp in the National Park. David's fallen tent is the beating heart of the nation of Israel. And it's going to come back and it's going to be better. It's going to be restored. Build it as it used to be gold-covered, a beacon to the nations around it. And all the nations, verse 12, all the nations that bear my name, not just Israel and Judah, but all those who are the Lord's. And this is the message of the prophets, verse 13, the days are coming. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will be good. When your vineyard produces great grapes, and you get to drink the wine. Not someone else drinking. When you you rebuild the city, and you get to live in it. 
not your enemies. Verse 15, the last verse of the book of Amos says, I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I've given them. You can see, can't you, why there are Christians today who think that the land of Israel is so important that we must have an occupied Israel with people who know the Lord in there, whether you're Jewish or Christian. The city of Jerusalem is not the land of God's people. Where does the king dwell now? The king is Jesus. And Jesus dwells at the right hand of God in the new creation. See, when you read verse 15 on this side of the resurrection, you know the land that Jesus is talking about. I'll plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I've given them. You are planted in heaven. If you're a person whose trust is in Jesus, your roots where you are going to grow in eternity, you're already planted in the new creation. Yeah, you're here. Your body is here. Your spirit is here. You are here, but you are planted in the place where you will never be torn down. In the meantime, pruned, yes, to produce more fruit. But we are not people who stand facing the judgment of God despite all that he knows about us. We've seen this fiery judgment burn on Jesus. And so we can read Amos and tremble at the God of justice. And it breeds in us a thankfulness to the one who bore that judgment in our place. That the judgment of God on Jesus was real. The cross is terrifying because it shows the cost of opposing the God who made us. It shows the cost of oppressing the poor and of heartless worship. The cross shows us the depth of the justice of God, that death, that blood being spilled, which was always the cost of sin. That blood must be spilled to pay the cost. And yet God says there's a time coming when you can be planted with me. Amos is terrifying because the Lord roars at the coming judgment. And even for those of us who know the Lord Jesus and rest secure in that our judgment is taken, does it not give us pause to think about how we are acting as these people in the world? How are we seeking justice now? How are we treating the poor now? Christians struggle with this because on one hand we know, in the end, God will fix it. And I think the two ways that we can swing our pendulum is to say, well, we don't really need to worry about enacting justice now because we know that God will bring justice. So I'll just pursue my own things. And on the other end of the pendulum... I need to enact justice now because God cares so much about justice. Can you see how both of those flow out of the truth of the gospel? God is the judge, and so we can leave him to judge. I don't need to worry about justice. I'm simply going to love my neighbour and pray for the people around me and work good for my family and my church. It sounds good. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. 
Don't oppress the poor. Work against poverty and inequality. Because this is what the Lord loves. These are both thoroughly gospel-driven convictions. And what does the Lord Jesus say? The Lord Jesus says in Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He's talking about treasure in Matthew 6. Don't stop treasure in heaven. Treasure the things that God treasures above all. And my immediate response is, but I need to eat. God says, don't worry. Your father knows what you need. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things that you worry about will be given to you. With the words of Amos ringing in our ears and the cross of Christ in the forefront of our lives, we're going to seek Jesus' kingdom. A kingdom where people are treated with the dignity they deserve because they're creatures of God, whether unborn or born. God's creatures. But we don't just care about people, we care about the kingdom of God, where Jesus reigns. And so we want people to know him. And so we'll give up our time and our money and our energy to see people one for Jesus. How will that happen? Well, as they see the way we love our neighbours. We'll seek his kingdom. Jesus says something about your eyes in Matthew 6. If your eyes are full of light, your whole body's full of light. So I've been reflecting on Amos this week. I've been thinking about To seek the kingdom means to see the world and to seek what God seeks in it. How are you going to, what are you going to see tomorrow? What are you going to see this week? And what will it look like for you to see it through the eyes of the king? The king of judgment, the king of mercy, the God who rules and reigns, who roars, and the God who relents and forgives. I'm going to give us a moment to pause and reflect uh, on what it would look like to seek Jesus' kingdom this week with the eyes that are filled with light and so see it the way he sees it. Heavenly Father, we recognise that you know all things. Uh, And while on one hand that terrifies us, we are so grateful for the full and complete forgiveness that comes in Jesus. We thank you that he has become for us righteousness from you. And so when you see us, you see his perfection. And we thank you for that extraordinary gift of your grace. Father, help us to remember your perfection, your justice, your desire for people whom you've created to be treated with dignity, for justice to be done in your world. And we pray for wisdom this week to see your world as you see it, to see those who are lost as facing your judgment, to see those in need, not as those who can be discounted, but those who matter to you. And so we pray that you would help us to trust you that you are our Father who knows what we need and that we would seek your kingdom with all the energy and all that you've given us uh, that we might be found commendable in your sight, that we might be the people you call us to be. In Christ's name.
crossed. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.